This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride is my ride or do not resuscitate, Mr. Will the Thrill. Is that, that that's part of the terms? I, I don't know about that. Uh, yeah, hi, now. everybody. <laughs> and uh, though I wish he was here, unfortunately, TJ2 the Deuce will not be appearing in this episode specifically because he works in media. And apparently there is some news that is fit to print that's happening in South Carolina right now. I don't exactly know what it is, but he's working on a deadline. So unfortunately, he will not be uh, joining us this episode. But uh, right. but how are you doing this week, Mr. Will of Thrill? Oh, doing good. It's been a week of ups. It's been a week of downs. It's been a lot of uh, trying to listen to the music of our next couple series because I believe... This is the end of the technical season, correct? This this episode, once this episode closes, we will officially be in season four. Ooh. Yeah. So this is the final episode of this season in which uh, the next season we will be starting out our 2020 draft. I think 2021 draft. I don't remember. Might have been but, 2019 draft. I'm not entirely yeah, sure. It could have been. We will be starting with TJ2. His series will be kicking that off. I do not know right now if we are going to be taking a week off after this episode. I will be finding out. We have a lot of things that are happening right now internally. Nothing to be too scared about. But one big thing is that we are prepping for Rockin' Pod in Nashville. Mm. And so uh, we got to get that in order. We're also taking another small trip. Um but yeah, so, you know, if we're not on next week, we will be posting about it. And we are sorry for any inconvenience that that might cause the Rock and Roll Heaven fan base. We we do love you guys, though. We do. And we will certainly not be gone long. We will be back and telling more great stories about the artists you love. Yep. So, uh, of course, it's always our unhappy news that I think we've we got off the hook maybe two or three weeks straight where I think the, the last one that we actually mentioned was Burt Baccarat. Like that was yeah, like the last passing a couple weeks ago. Uh, if I'm mistaken, I do apologize. But of course, this week made up for it. And we have four or five deaths that we need to talk about. Um, one, of course, uh, you know, we are a rock-based show. So it'll the, the next four we're, we'll be musicians. But we do want to recognize that Tom Sizemore passed away. I believe he was 61. Yeah. Um, the crazy thing is I actually worked with his brother at a restaurant. That's what you told me. And I remember you originally telling me when he started working there. I was like, wait, is that the, the same? And yeah. you confirmed that it was. Yeah. Uh, if I remember correctly, his name was Paul. 
Okay. And we worked at a restaurant called Jinkies that I worked for for like 13 years or some crazy <laughs> amount of time like that. They wouldn't let but, you leave. <laughs> they, they would not let me leave. As I quit. No, yeah, I'll see you tomorrow. We'll, we'll okay. see you on the next shift, yeah. Yeah. But Paul was very nice. You know, I kind of carry that over to his family. But since I do know Paul, Paul, my my thoughts and my my heart go out to you and your family during this trying time. I know it's really hard to say... Well, I, I don't know, but I can imagine that it's very hard to say goodbye to a sibling. And so yeah. our thoughts are with you guys. The other one is pulp bassist Steve Mackey. Steve Mackey was a longtime bassist for the Brit pop band Pulp. He died at the age of 56, which like now that we're in our 40s, that still seems really young. Really does. So is Tom Sizemore at 60, 61. I mean, yeah. that's that's nothing these days. yeah. The other one was David Lindley. David Lindley was the guitarist best known for his work with Jackson Brown. He passed away at the age of 78. The other one was the in-house producer and engineer who made albums for Black Flag, Minutemen, Husker Du, Meat Puppets, and so, so many more artists from the 1980s at SSU Records who went by the name Spot. Now, originally he was born Glenn Lockett in 1951, and he was a musician, producer, writer, photographer, passed away. And apparently when approaching the mixing board, he would assume an Elvis-like stance <laughs> and gesture towards all the knobs. And he would say in a Louis Armstrong voice, this is going to be gelatinous. <laughs> so, that was not a very good Louis Armstrong impression. I'm, I'm not even going to try. I'm just saying. Nope, I'm not not even going to dry. Apparently, Spot suffered from fibrosis and had been awaiting a lung transplant, which I guess did not come through. So again, a really sad end to someone who was extraordinarily talented. I would even say like a trailblazer because mm-hmm. if it like Black Flag is really well known for their sound. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the... Is it Henry Rollins? Yeah, it was Black Flag, right? Yeah, Henry Rollins was a a member of Black Flag, but he was a member, I want to say, like in the early 80s, like 81 to 86, 87, something Mm. like that. There are are four current members of Black Flag right now. So, but yeah, no, I mean, this guy was incredibly influential, but he he was the producer and the engineer for those guys. And so... You know, without that engineering, they wouldn't have that sound that they are so well known for. So, Spot, and just so you go, you guys know, um, Spot is actually spelled with all caps. Yeah. <laughs> like that's just how you spell it. So, As you do. So again, uh, we lost another great trailblazer, and then finally, uh, Gary Rossington. Yeah. The that's last a tough remaining, one. yeah, the last remaining founding member of Leonard Skinner passed away. Yeah. So he he actually had undergone emergency heart surgery in Atlanta. Well, I mean, the thing with Gary Rosington is if you've ever heard a Leonard Skinner song and their guitar lines are very memorable, that was Gary Rosington. I mean, him, Alan Collins, and Steve Gaines were really the backbone of that band. And, you know, Rosington was part of what made their signature sound. Yeah. And he was... I, well, my brother was texting me back and forth because anytime somebody passes away... Like my brother's on top of it because he's actually on the line. So, right. but he survived the plane crash that killed yeah. the original members. 
Mm-hmm. Which is, you guys know, if you're a longtime listener of the show, you guys know that that's like my personal nightmare is to die in a plane crash. Like, I cannot think of anything scarier than that. And I so, just imagine being the only, one of the only surviving members of your band and, and then carrying on after that. That's just, that's crazy. Yeah. So they actually announced his passing on their Facebook page. He passed away on the 5th. We're recording this on the 7th. They didn't reveal the cause of death, but he had a long history of heart issues that caused him Mm -hmm. to take an extended leave of absence from the band. And he actually returned to the stage in Atlanta on October 23rd, 2021, four four months after he had undergone uh, emergency heart surgery. Oh, jeez. So, you know, that really sucks. It does, yeah. uh, Because Leonard Skinner, when you're born, they just play Leonard Skinner. (laughs) For you as you're coming out of the womb, so you you understand how important yep. Leonard Skinner is as a Southern rock artist. So, one of the um, two pioneers of Southern rock, and we will cover the other very soon. Yeah, and the thing is, people get wrong is that "Sweet Home Alabama" is a satirical song. Mm-hmm. They just don't get it. Um, it's a satirical song. So, with everyone that we just talked about, as always. There's nothing harder than to lose an icon, a family member, a friend, a bandmate. And so our thoughts and our prayers go out to every person affected by the four passings that we just talked about. And we love the fans. You guys are, you know, that you guys are the reason why we always do this is because you have the love of rock in your heart. And it's going to be so hard. Yeah, as we get older, we're losing more and more of our icons. And that's my big takeaway, is that the older you get, the more loss you have. Mm. Yeah, it's true. And, and uh, we're starting to really lose the ones that we really grew up with. So, <sighs> okay. All right. Now, we're just getting off on a really sweet note now. I know, right? So, I think right now is the best time for us to take a short sponsor break. And we will be back with the finale of Stephen Sondheim, part six. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. (laughs) Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. And we are back, and we are going to jump straight into Stephen Sondheim. Here we go. I'm going to carry over <laughs> the feeling of moroseness 
that we already started the show with. Remember the last episode, Stephen had suffered a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Well, he suffered two major losses, kind of like boom, boom. Luis Vargas, his friend, confidant, the man who basically ran his household, passed away. But he also lost his half-brother, Herbie, who had been extremely ill as a child. And I don't ever think he actually, like, got any better. Walter Sondheim said he was a wonderful child who became very self-destructive with a fantastic sense about a disease that would kill him. Stephen said that he would gamble and smoke and was always in debt. Walt said that he was warned if he didn't change his lifestyle, his kidneys would fail. And two and a half years later, that's exactly what happened. Oh, Steve, Steve came to find out that his brother's kidneys were only working at 10% the normal capacity. I'm not a doctor, but that doesn't sound good. <laughs> yeah. On Christmas Eve, Herb was Herbie was rushed to the hospital. He was living in New Mexico and was very hesitant to ask Stephen to go to Stanford, but Herbie seemed so seriously ill that he finally called and asked him. The minute that Herbie was out of immediate crisis, Stephen was out there. That fitted a pattern that most people would see in Stephen, that he really wasn't able to deal well with illness or loss. Now, you might think that it was because he was uncaring, but his friend Milton Babbitt recalled that Stephen attended a benefit in his honor and said a few kind words and then dissolved into tears because his brother had died the day before. Mm. When Dorothy Hammerstein died in 1987, at the age of 988, Jamie Hammerstein said that they had a memorial service for my mother and there was a reception in the room at the back of the church with a staircase leading from it to a back exit. We drank champagne when Stephen was suddenly overcome with tears and ran down the stairs. Half an hour later, he tried to come back, but only got halfway up the stairs and then disappeared again. He was so overcome, but it had also been noted that there was a stark reaction to when his own mother died five years later in the spring of 1982. His new secretary, Steve Clara, and Foxy's retirement home took care of the arrangements for her funeral, and Stephen didn't even know where she had been buried. Mm. So, moving on to something a little bit happier, I guess was I have a fun fact for you. A fun fact. Did you know that Stephen Sondheim wrote five songs for Warren Beatty's film, Dick Tracy, which starred Madonna and Warren Beatty? I I actually didn't know that. And it stars many other names as well. Oh my God. Isn't Al Pacino in it as well? Yeah. Yeah. He's a big boy. Yeah. And the the piano player is Mandy Patinkin. I'm sorry, what? Yes. He's uh, 88 Keys. Paul Servino. I mean, the list just goes on. Uh, that's one of those films that I think I've seen once mm-hmm. or twice, but remember more than I should. Right. Like I it's, don't think I don't think I was supposed to watch it at the age I watched it at. And it was, and the little boy was the same one in uh, Can't Hardly Wait, who goes, "I can't feel my legs." Really? Yeah, it's Char- Charlie Corsmo. Wow. Now that that movie is just like a star fest. Yeah. Well. The film, of course, was a a stylish romp through Tracy Land and was enhanced insurmountably by Stephen Sondheim's songs, which captured the period and the flavor of the movie perfectly. <laughs> Beatty had originally asked Sondheim to score the picture in addition to writing the songs, but Stephen wasn't interested in doing that whole thing. So, which is really interesting because he fought so hard to be the lyricist and the composer before. <laughs> but you know who took his place, right? Who's that? Danny Elfman. 
Well, I mean, at this point, Elfman was, I mean, he's on his way to becoming more of a household name. This is 1990, so this is after Beetlejuice. This right, is after... I, I would still think by after Batman, yeah. Yeah, I feel like he, Danny Elfman was probably well-established by this point. He's getting destroyed. Yeah. Madonna had written a song called Back in Business for the montage sequence, which followed the incarceration of Dick Tracy when all the crooks came out to take over the city. Mm-hmm. However, nobody was pleased with it, and Warren, with the pressure of a screening a month away, prevailed on the Sondheim to write a new Back in Business song. In the song, Sondheim used words like bang and boom, specifically to punctuate the image of explosions. And like, although when the montage was edited, it didn't exactly conform to his wishes. So Mm. it was, I think he was trying to inject a little bit of onomatopoeia and it was supposed to be injected when the punches were landed and the editing crew did not do that. To make it more like a comic book, I'm guessing? Yeah, because he he wanted to use like the bang when someone was being hit. So Mm. What Can You Lose is one of Sondheim's most beautiful creations for any medium. A rueful song about unrequited love, which came about because Beatty wanted a song for Mandy Patinkin, and he had fallen in love with a dialogue that Mandy had, which became the song's title. More is a perfect example of Sondheim's trademark facility with words, and the music is brassy, sassy, and catchy. Listen to the very clever verse, and you can see all the quotes that Sondheim used for the optimistic songs of the period. Now, my personal favorite song was a song that was actually recorded for Madonna for the soundtrack, I'm Breathless. Remember, because she played Breathless Mahoney. Mm-hmm. And it was written by Stephen Sondheim and produced by Madonna and Bill Bottrell. I'm probably saying that wrong because <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a great track record with names. The song was composed to invoke the theatrical nature and style of the film, which was a 1930s jazzy style blues ballad with piano, drum, double bass, and horns. The track conjures up the atmosphere of a smoky nightclub, and she sings in her lower register, Mm -hmm. accompanied by a variable pitch. So when it came down to what critics had to say, it's actually really positive. And it was an important addition to Madonna's catalog, and at the 63rd Academy Awards held on March 25th, 1991, the song won an Oscar for the best original song, which was hmm. awarded to Sondheim. Hey. Do we know what this song is? That he won an Oscar for? Yep. <sighs> I do not. I'm actually going to play it right now. Oh, nice. And that song is Sooner or Later. Do you know the song, honey? If I heard it, I don't remember off the top of my head.
We're back. Okay, now I recognize the song. Okay, good. I had no idea it was song time. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. I'm pretty sure most of our listeners would not have known that was Stephen Sondheim. But it's funny because I always say, you guys, even if you say, I hate musicals, I hate musicals, I hate them, there's at least one that you do really like. And I think that <laughs> even for like the most staunch hater of musicals, can agree. Stephen Sondheim's kind of a badass. Oh, there's no question. Some composer. I remember that. Some yeah. composer. Yeah. Thank you. God, that that, awesome. I will continue to thank Brian for the hat. Thank that you. That was amazing. <laughs> so what did you think of the song? Like now that you remember it? I mean, I think the fact that I didn't recognize it as Sondheim is to his credit. Because yes, I recognize the song. It's just fully immersed in that world. You know, it's that smoky 30s kind of sound. Um, which he he just nailed. So, you know, yeah. good on him for being a chameleon. I I love it because it's when Madonna is good, she's great. Mm-hmm. I actually prefer her in her lower register. Yeah, I think when she gets too high, she's a little bit nasally. Please don't come at me, guys. If you love Madonna, she's a fine artist. I just actually prefer her when she's in that like bluesy track. So, all right. Well, hopping back into the story. At some point, Rob Reiner, a name that we know in this household. We certainly do. Yeah, he worked for Castle Rock Productions, called Goldman one day and said that he had an idea for a musical. It'd be a movie about a movie musical that was in trouble. Goldman called Steve and to his great surprise, he jumped on the idea. 
Sondheim said that film musicals as opposed to stage musicals are something that fascinated him because film is a reportial medium and theater is a poetic medium. I've rarely mm. seen musicals work on film. Musicals tell stories and explore characters. And I would love to go at solving that problem. Now, Goldman said that they worked on it for something like three drafts and Steve wrote a fabulous score of six or eight songs. Now, you keep going, Lindley, what are you doing? Who's Goldman? Who's Goldman? <laughs> it's William Goldman. That's like I say, Bill Goldman, yeah. Like Princess Bride, Heat, Marathon Man, William Goldman. So Considered one of the best screenwriters of all time, right? I would actually, in my humble opinion... I think he's one of the best storytellers that we had in our generation. Like he is, he knows how to craft a story. He's amazing. I'll give you a story about Steve. He is very brave as to what he'll try creatively. They were sitting around one day and talking to Robin, his partner, and Steve, myself, which is William Goldman. And there is a section for a scene in the recording studio where the heroine sings a song, but she's lacking in front confidence and she can't, she can't sing. It's a huge scene. It takes place over eight to 10 minutes. And Steven said, I can try that. I remember thinking, wow, that is a lot of work to do. And he just did it. <laughs> it's a great scene. Most guys, I would say, can write a song and you guys make the book. But Steven is willing to get in and do the whole thing. Now, I'm bummed because I feel like I probably would have loved this. And Hollywood loves a story about Hollywood. Look at oh, La La yeah. Land and, you know. Argo. I'm, I'm impressed that Babylon hadn't actually gotten any Oscar noms because Hollywood loves Hollywood. Was that on the artist? Yeah. But nothing came from the film, which was titled Sing Out Loud. And I, I did not have anything. I didn't even look because it was like, oh, it's, they completely abandoned it. So mm. now Goldman thought that it was because the director changed his mind after another movie musical, which was a huge flop. And that cost was projected at 50 million at the time. And that was considered extremely high in those days. Castle Rock still owns the score and both Goldman and Steven had said that they wanted to work on the idea again. Rob Reiner said these things never completely die and maybe it would be resurrected. For a film that wasn't ever made, it was one of the greatest experiences he had ever had, he said. And that Mm -hmm. was a quote from Rob Reiner. Nice. Now, I'd like to introduce you to Peter Jones, later referred to as PJ, distinguishing him from Peter Worcester. Worcester? Oh, that guy. I don't know. (laughs) He's the saucy guy. Could have told me anything. I would have believed you. (laughs) Okay, great. Thank you. Who was a series of young men who in recent years had knocked on Stephen Sondheim's door, hoping to become his pupil. He had been born into a large Catholic family and grew up in Wyoming and had spent most of his life in Denver, eking out a living as a composer and a lyricist for a children's theater and working in the school system, teaching a creative dramatics class. He had several relationships with both sexes and had been living for the past three years with a electronics engineer in Denver, whom he exchanged wedding rings with. But of course, now we know gay marriage wasn't recognized until much later. He was ambitious and he wanted to try his luck in New York. So finally, his partner urged him to go and write Sondheim to see whether there was an apprenticeship program or something that he could enroll in. He wrote and received a prompt reply during Christmas holiday of 1990. Sondheim said that if he were ever in New York, he'd be happy to see him. Jones immediately 
bought the cheapest train ticket he could and arrived in New York on February 15th, <laughs> which was the closing nights for Assassin, a date that would seem highly significant to him in retrospect. He moved in with a friend from his college days who lived in Queens and got in touch with Stephen. And he said, I was running out of money at only a few hundred dollars and a meeting was being delayed by Stephen Clare, which was Stephen's secretary. One day he went out to mail three resumes and returned to his apartment where there was a flashing light and a message from Stephen on the phone machine inviting him to come by that day at six o'clock. The phone machine? The phone machine. The answering machine. The voicemail. Electronic. I remember that, yeah. I remember if you got a voicemail message on an answering machine and you saw that there were like six messages, you're like, oh God. Yeah. It's like nothing good can come of this. And you just have to stand there with a sheet of paper and a pen. Oh, and like, because like, for, if I remember correctly, like the old ones, you couldn't rewind or like deleted it immediately or something, or I didn't know how to work it. Which like is, Mission Impossible? Which <laughs> is a distinct possibility because I'd never read the instructions on literally anything. Nope. But... Uh, <laughs> you do not. I don't. Also, I should probably read the instructions for the handsaw before I use it. Yeah, probably a good idea. But yeah, I just remember having to stand next to the the answering machine with a pen in my hand just ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> so Jones was slight with medium height and glasses and a massive, uh, just a hunk of curly brown hair and a square chin. And he had the look of a young poet, not my words. He was a vegetarian and did not drink alcohol. And his interest in New Age theories about time and space in particular were the way random events can seem to conspire about bringing a certain result or what Young called synchronicity. He arrived at the house and was led in by Stephen himself. And that's something you would discover that the composer rarely did. He was sure Stephen was inwardly dreading an encounter with yet another fan, hmm. an impression that was reinforced when Sondheim suddenly disappeared upstairs to make a phone call. The composer later returned and said that some distance away on the couch. So he, he sat some distance away on the couch. A conversation began and he said, to my surprise, time just flew by. I thought, here I am, an uneducated man talking to a sophisticate like Stephen. And then Stephen took him on a tour of the house and that's when they discovered their mutual attraction. After some hesitation, Jones decided to accept Stephen's invitation for a weekend in the country and they left the next morning. Oh. By then, it was February 24th, and negotiations were on the point of collapse for Broadway's acceptance of Assassins. Remember, we actually talked about last week how Assassins had never made it to Broadway proper, that it was always off-Broadway. Like, I oh, think, man. yeah, I think at this point, it has been on Broadway, but mm -hmm. at this point, it had not. Correct, and it made that theater where two people fell asleep behind us. <sighs> the last episode. Oh, my gosh. So they were on the point of collapse, and Stephen said that we arrived at the end negotiations, and there was a slight sprinkle of snow on the ground. He was showing his guests the grounds wearing moccasins. And with that kind of weather, they were definitely the wrong kind of shoes. He slipped a couple of times and then Jones tried to urge him to change his shoes, but Stephen dismissed the idea and continued on their walk. The third time he slipped, he heard a sound that he would never forget. It was like the cracking of a rifle in the woods. He thought it couldn't mm. be what he thought it was. Jones and Worcester helped him get back to the house and the doctors advised him to see an orthopedist the next day. By then, his ankle was really starting to hurt. It was very painful even to climb up on the examination table. Oh, jeez. While the x-rays were being deployed, he was lying on the table feeling sorry for himself and suddenly he heard the student nurse come in, take a look and say, oh boy. 
Imagine. Oh boy. That's never a good yeah. What does it sound like crinkles the clown? Breakfast. Oh God. By then I knew I had some classic fracture that she had been taught in school. The senior nurse showed him the film of the break, and it was as if someone had drawn a pencil line straight across the bone. Thank God it wasn't in fragments. His leg was in a cast for the next two months and he hobbled around on crutches and felt absolutely helpless. I can imagine, like Yeah. I remember like the five days after I had gotten my appendix out, I felt so useless. Like yeah. I couldn't move fast. I couldn't do anything. You had to like, you know, get me food. I couldn't even get on the bed. It hurt too bad to get on the bed. Yeah, even moving in the slightest manner was painful, yeah. Yeah, so I can't even imagine what two months would be. But he asked Jones to help stay and he agreed to part amicably from his partner in Denver. And the informal living arrangement soon became a permanent one. Hey, LD, I hate to break up the run here, but we are going to take a moment to break for our sponsors. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts.
And we are back. All right, let's wrap up our series on Stephen Sondheim. A few weeks or months later, Stephen was telling his friends that he was love, like really in love for the first time, which I think is awesome. Hmm. And Stephen's next project was also with James Lapine. It was the third, actually, with Lapine called Passion. It is a one-act musical with music and lyrics by, of course, Stephen Sondheim. And the book was by James. The story was adapted from Laura Scola's 1981 film. There's no reason why I should ever attempt to speak <laughs> uh, French. Passion de amour. What is okay. that, the good times roll? Roulette. Just illustrating a point. Yeah. No, and I come from I come from New Orleans. That is my literal yeah, that's, hometown. That's Cajun. That's a totally and different bolo axe. Well, that's supposed to be what I can speak. I can understand Cajun. I can't speak it. <laughs> you got a leg up on most if you can do that. Yeah. So, well, I mean, like, remember the 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 dinner that we had with our our good friend Johnny? Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, that that was a crash course. Yeah, dude, Johnny Rock. If you guys don't know is the the voice that actually introduces the show. And if you're listening to this on a Friday night, chances are you're listening to it on the Johnny Rock and Roll show because he also carries it over there. So he's been so good to this show. You know, I'll try to put a link down in our show notes so you guys can check him out because he runs his own... Is it, I don't think it's called Pirate Radio, but it's own radio station. He has a, yeah, I don't think Pirate Radio is right, but it is his own station. But he's awesome. I cannot speak highly enough of Johnny. He's an incredible person. So, yeah, but he is, that's his home, you know, and it is lovely to hear him speak. I love to hear him talk. But again, I can't speak French. And I, uh, yeah, and, and I, I, <laughs> I'm terrible at it. And I am fully aware of that. And I'm sorry. <laughs> the other thing <laughs> terrible about it is, there's a source material that I'm not even going to attempt to say. It's an 1869 <laughs> novel, Fosca. The central okay. themes include love, sex, obsession, illness, passion, beauty, power, manipulation. Passion is noted for being one of the few projects that Stephen had conceived himself along with Roadshow and Sweeney Todd. So it is set in Italy. And it concerns a young soldier and the changes brought to him by his obsessive love of Fosca, his ailing cousin. It sounds like a flavored sparkling water. Fosca. <laughs> he actually first came up with the idea for writing a musical when he saw the Italian film in 1983. As Fosca started speaking to the camera and cut back to her, I had my empathy. I realized that the story was not about how she was going to fall in love with him, but how was he going to fall in love with her? At the same time, thinking, this is never going to convince me of that. They're never going to pull it off. All while knowing that they would, that Gola wouldn't have taken on such a ripely melodramatic story unless he was convinced that he could make it plausible. By the end of the movie, the unwritten songs in my head were brimming, and I was certain of two things. First, I wanted to make it into a musical. The problem being that it couldn't be a musical, not even in the non-traditional style, because the characters are so outsized. Second, I wanted James Lapine to write it, he was a romantic. He had a feel for different centuries and different cultures, and he was enthusiastically attracted to weirdness. I think. That is a great line. <laughs> that is a great line. Enthusiastically attracted to weirdness. I want to be enthusiastically attracted to weirdness. Wait, no, I am the weirdness, aren't I? 
Uh, something like that. You are strange and unusual. Oh, yay, I'm Lydia. <laughs> <laughs> As it turns out, Lapine was already exploring the idea of adapting Muscle, which was a memoir by Sam Fusel. Together, they came up with the idea of pairing both acts as like a double bill. So it'd be one story and then the next story. Lapine wrote a couple of scenes in Sondheim, but just started working on the opening number when he began to feel like his music was unsuitable for muscle. The piece was more contemporary in his opinion, required some sort of reflecting pop sensibilities. And he called up Lapine and he said, hey, why don't you find a different songwriter, perhaps William Ben, and include this as its companion piece. Meanwhile, they continued to work on passion. As the piece grew, they found that it was enough to fill an entire evening of theater. And then Muscle was eventually shelved. Mm. After 52 previews, Passion opened on Broadway at the Plymouth Theater on May 9th, 1994, and closed on January 7th, 1995. Directed by James Lapine, it closed on January 7th, 1995. That production was filmed, and shortly after its closing, it was televised on the public broadcasting system series American Playhouse on September the 8th, 1996. It was actually released on DVD in 2003 by Imagine Entertainment. And I think Imagine is... It's Ron Howard, right? Ron Howard, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the musical ran for a total of 280 performances, which is the shortest running musical to ever win the Tony Award for Best Musical. Mm. Uh, the pivotal role of Fosco was actually... A, offered to Patti Lapone, but she turned it down to star in Sunset Boulevard on the West End. Lapone hmm. was famously fired from Sunset Boulevard in favor of Glenn Close, who would take the show to Broadway. And I think there was a whole foo-foo-do with... Andrew foo -foo Yeah, with Andrew Lloyd Webber. And that's why Patti Lapone was fired. I don't know the whole story, but apparently I'm starting another podcast, which is just going to be about <laughs> Broadway. Uh, and so maybe we'll cover that. I guess. Fair also, enough, yeah. Also, here's a vague <laughs> announcement that I think I'm going to be doing another podcast. A not-so-subtle teaser, yeah. Yes. Ooh. Clara Barnes gave the musical a rave review. Once in an extraordinary while, you sit in a theater and your body shivers with the sense and thrill of something so new, something so unexpected, that it seems for those fugitive moments more like life than art. Passion is just plain wonderful, emotional, and yes, passionate. Sometimes music, his most expressive yet, glows and glowers and a tunic has found the precise tonal correlations for its impressionic moods and emotional overlays. She's wordy, baby, wordy. <laughs> From the start of his career, Sondheim has pushed the parameters of his heart. Here is his breakthrough. Uh, dramatic, this is the most thrilling piece of theater on Broadway. So, let's do a little wrap-up. So, Woo! it won the Tony Award for Best Musical and Best Score. Of course, Stephen Sondheim. Best Book, James Lapine. Best Actress at a Musical, Donna Murphy. The Drama Desk Award for Best Musical. Best Music, Best Lyrics. Best Book of a Musical. Best Actress in a Musical. And Best Orchestration. Now, I could not find a cast recording. They did have a version of Losing You by Jeremy Jordan, which I thought was awesome. But I'm actually going to play a version of Loving You, which is from KQXR, and it was live in green space. So okay. this is a live version of the song, 
loving you. Okay. Loving you is not a choice. It's who I am. Loving you is not a choice and not much reason to rejoice. But it gives me purpose, gives me voice to say to the world, this is why I live. You are why I live. Loving you is why I do the things I do. Loving you not in my control but loving you I have a goal for what's left of my life I will live and I would die I really like the piano line on that one. It's, uh, I don't know, it's very quiet and sort of haunting, but it's also very similar to Pretty Women from Sweeney Todd, if you hear it. It is. Yeah. I was actually going to say the yep. exact same thing. Um, that da na 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 Like, it's a really simple piano tune, but it's very pretty. Really emotional and really beautiful. And I want to say Kuhn is her last name. Judy Kuhn okay. is the vocalist on that. Um, but she's got such a simple and understated voice that I thought she did the piece justice. Like she didn't blow yeah. it out. She could have, you know, she could have made that big and bold and vibrant, but she didn't. She was really reserved and it was beautiful. It's a very, very understated song and that I think is a good thing. Yeah. So uh, Passions was Stevens and James Lapine's last collaboration on musical. Like I said, with a run of 280 performances, it was the shortest running show to win a Tony Award for Best Musical, which I think is awesome. But again, you have to really play your cards right to get mm. a Tony a nomination, especially since you basically have 365 days from Tony to Tony. And there's mm -hmm. there's like a window that you have to get it in so that people don't forget your show. So it must have butted up like really closely to actually... Mm -hmm. Pull that off. Well, I mean, it's Stephen Sondheim. Just saying, it's Stephen <laughs> Sondheim. There's a re. It's it's not that it was just like here's the luck of the draw. You win a Tony. You get a Tony. You get a Tony. You get, you a get no, one. No, yeah. It's it's actually incredibly beautiful. So, um, after he was mentored by Oscar Hammerstein, Hammerstein, Roger, Rogers and Hammerstein, Hammerstein, Hammerstein. We still haven't solved it. It's the end of the series. <laughs> oh well. It's just, if I don't, if I say Rogers and Hammerstein, I say it correctly. If I look at it, I'm like, that's a Doesn't scene. Doesn't make sense. <laughs> no, Hammerstein, I'm, yeah. 
Hammerstein <laughs> after he was uh, mentored by uh, Rogers and Hammerstein. Hammerstein? Oh, God, I quit. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> after he was <laughs> mentored by Oscar, Sondheim referred to return to the favor, saying that he loved passing on what Oscar passed on to me. In an interview with Sondheim for the Legacy Project, composer and lyricist Adam Goulet, the son of Mary Rogers and the grandson of Richard Rogers, recalled how he as a 14-year-old boy showed Sondheim his work. He was crestfallen since he had come in short of all puffed up and thinking that he would be rained with compliments, which if you remember in our, I believe is our very first episode, I talked about how he had created, Stephen had created a show for Oscar and he gave it to him and he was like, this is bad. Now, yeah. it doesn't mean you don't have talent, but this is not good. And, you know, are you going to take my advice and are you going to listen to me or are you going to be grumpy about it and give up? And uh -huh. Stephen sat next to him and they went beat by beat and he explained to him, like, this is, you know, this is how you fix this. You know, it wasn't, the case, because basically his mentor had done the same thing to him, mm -hmm. he had some very direct things to say. Later, Stephen wrote and apologized to him for not being very encouraging when he was actually trying to be constructive. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we all know, here's where my heart melts. Mm -hmm. Stephen also mentored someone who's very close to my heart and that I love dearly. And I'm going to try not to cry when I'm telling this story. But he mentored Jonathan Larson. That he did. He attended Larson's workshop for the show Suburbia, which is originally an adaptation of 1984. And in Larson's musical Tick, Tick, Boom, the phone message is played in which Sondheim apologizes for leaving early. He says he wants to meet him and is pressed with his work. After Larson's death, Sondheim called him one of the few composers attempting to blend contemporary pop music with theater music, which doesn't work very well. He was on his way to finding a real synthesis. A oh, good wow. deal of pop music has interesting lyrics, but they're just not theater lyrics. A musical theater composer must have a sense of what is theatrical, of how you use music to tell a story as opposed to writing a song. Jonathan understood that instinctively. Wow. Now, if you also listen or if you if you watch the film Tick, Tick, Boom, which, by the way, I probably said this before. I don't remember. Um, I was very medicated the last two episodes, but um, I think it's on Netflix. Please is, yeah. take the time to go watch Tick, Tick, Boom. It is such a beautiful, moving story. And I really wish that I had the resources to actually do Jonathan Larson. But like I've said, it's information about a linear story about Jonathan Larson's life just doesn't exist. And so if you are a novelist out there looking for your next subject, please write a book on Jonathan Larson so <laughs> I can use it as a resource material for this podcast. But yeah, it's please go see Tick, Tick, Boom. It is beautiful. And if you watch, Stephen is actually played by Bradley Whitford, which... Oh, that performance, yeah. You would not know it's Bradley Whitford. It's he crazy. Is, it is crazy how much he looks like, including like the droop in his eye. But if you listen to Tick, Tick, Boom, 
there is a voicemail message that Jonathan Larson receives, and that is actually Stephen Sondheim. It is, I believe, one of the last things that he recorded before he passed away. They used the real message, right? They He recorded a new message. Oh, that's crazy. Because I don't think they actually had the old message since it would have come out before 1996. But they had him perform it, basically. Yeah. Correct. So during the late 1990s, Sondheim and Weidman returned for Wise Guys, a musical comedy based on the lives of a colorful businessman, Addison and Wilson Misner, a Broadway production starring, of course, Nathan Lane and Victor Garber, directed by Sam Mendes, was planned for the spring of 2000, which was delayed. It was renamed Bounce. And in 2003, it was produced at the Goodman Theater in Chicago and at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., in a production directed by Harold Prince. His first collaboration with Sondheim since 1981. Told you we'd be circling back to that. Sondheim and his collaborators sought out new venues for his increasingly daring work. Bounce recounted the follies of the 1920s in Florida, Land Bloom, which opened up in Chicago and in Washington. The script, like that of Pacific Overtures and Assassins, was written by John Whiteman. Although after poor reviews, Bounce was never received by Broadway. A revised version opened off-Broadway as Roadshow at the Public Theater on October 28, 2008, which was directed by John Doyle, and that closed its doors on December 28, 2008. So it it ran for a little more than two months. Mm. The production actually won the 2009 Obie Awards for Music and Lyrics and Drama Desk for uh, the, uh, the Honor of Outstanding Lyrics. And uh, Stephen also received the Academy of Achievements Gold Medal from the Awards Council. That was actually delivered to him by James Earl Jones in 2005. (laughs) Yeah, James Earl Jones presented him that award. That's pretty awesome. At the uh, Broadway Symposium in New York City, 2005. Asked about writing new work, Sondheim replied in 2006, no, it's age. It's a diminishment of, it's a diminution. Diminution? Okay. Diminution. It's diminishing energy and the worry that there were no new ideas. Also, it's an increased lack of confidence. I'm not the only one. I've checked with other people. People expect more of you than you're aware of it, and you shouldn't be. In 2007, he said that in addition to continuing work on Bounce, he was nibbling at a couple things with Wademan and Lapine. Lapine prepared the multimedia production I Sondheim, a musical review, which was scheduled to open in April of 2009 at the Alliance Theater in Atlanta. Hey. Hey. I don't know that theater. I wonder. It might have changed names by now, maybe. I don't maybe. know. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, it was canceled due to difficulties encountered by the commercial producers attached to the project in raising the necessary funds. Later revised as Sondheim on Sondheim, the review was produced at Studio 54 by the Roundabout Theater Company. Previews began on March 19th, 2010 and ran from April 22nd to June 13th. That cast included Barbara Cook, Vanessa L. Williams, Tom Wolpat, Norm Lewis, and Leslie Critcher. So several benefits were performed to celebrate Stephen Sondheim's 80th birthday in 2010. Among them were the New York Philharmonic's birthday concert at the Lincoln Center's Avery Fisher Hall, which was hosted by David Hyde Pierce. Some of the performers included Victoria Clark, Jason Delaney, Joanna Gleason, which, of course, she was in Into the Woods' original cast, 
Patty Lapone, Audra McDonald, Donna Murphy, Karen Obilome, Mandy Patinkin, Bernadette Peters, of course, Elaine Stritch, and Chip Zinn, and the 2009 Broadway revival of the cast of West Side Story. A ballet was performed by Blaine Hoven to Stephen Sondheim's score for Reds, and Jonathan Tunick paid tribute to his longtime collaborator. And that concert was actually performed on PBS's Great Performances show in November, and it was released on DVD on November the 16th. So we're going to listen to a song from that performance, which was hosted by David Hyde Pierce in honor of Stephen Sondheim's 80th birthday. We're going to listen to Elaine Stritch, I'm Still Here. times and bum times I've seen them all and my dear I'm still here plush velvet sometimes sometimes just pretzels and beer but I'm here I've stuffed the dailies in my shoes strummed ukuleles sung the blues Seen all my dreams disappear But I'm here I've slept in shanties Guest of the WPA But I'm here Danced in my scanties Three bucks a night was the pay But I'm here I've stood on bread lines with the best Watched while the headlines did the rest In the depression, was I depressed? Nowhere near I met a big financier So I'm here I've been through Gandhi Wally and Windsor's affair But I'm here Amos and Andy Mahjong and platinum hair But I'm here I got through Amy's Irish Rose Five Dion babies Major Bowles Had heebie-jeebies Four BBs Bathosphere I live through Barbara Walters I've gotten through Herbert and J. Edgar Hoover Gee, that was fun in the half When you've been through Herbert and J. Edgar Hoover Anything else is a lie. I've been through Reno, I've been through Beverly Hills, <laughs> and I'm here. <laughs> Reefers and Vino, 
rest cures religion and pills but I'm here been called a pinko commie too got through its stinko by my pool I should have gone to an acting school that seems clear I'm still someone said she's sincere so I'm here black sable one day next day goes into hot but I'm here top billing Monday Tuesday you're touring in stock but I'm here first you're another slow-eyed bear then someone's mother then your camp then you career from career to career Gotten through, hey lady, aren't you who's this? Wow, what a looker you were. Or better yet, sorry, Jesus, I thought you were who's this. Whatever happened to her? Times a long time. and beer I have run the gamut A to Z three chairs damn it say me I got through all the last year and I'm here Christ knows at least I was there We're back. Thoughts? <laughs> because I have several. Uh, it reminds me of the 12 drunk days of Christmas. It kind of does. <laughs> Doesn't it? Even like the cadence of it. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> no, you're right. But she's got a voice. Holy oh, cow, absolutely. she's got a voice. Yeah. And you know, that's one of the, the funnier... Uh, that That's just full of wit and humor. And I love mm-hmm. it. Now, that one performance, the benefit performed at New York's Philharmonic was just one of several to honor Stephen on his 80th birthday. So Sondheim 80 was a roundabout theater company benefit, which was held on March 22nd. His birthday lasted for like eight months. Festivus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that evening included a performance of Sondheim on Sondheim, dinner and a show at uh, the New York Sheridan, which was a very personal star-studded musical tribute, which was sung by contemporary theater musicians. The composers who sang their own song included mm. Tom Kitt, Brian Yorkie, Michael John LaCosa, Andrew Lipa, Robert Lopez, and Kristen Anderson Lopez. Now, do those names sound familiar? Robert and Kristen Lopez? Hi. No. Okay, well, um, I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna play the whole song, but I just want you to know who they are. Okay. And uh, see if 
it sounds familiar to you. Oh, wow, really? Yep, yep. Huh, how about that? Yep, they they were the ones that created the music for Frozen and Frozen no 2, including Let It Go, that dadgum earworm. That oh, I listened to that song like a five-year-old on a car trip. You couldn't avoid it. It was everywhere. You could not. But they were contemporaries. They've done they've done more stuff, but like that is what they are known sure. for. And of course, my patron saint, Lynn Manuel Miranda. Yeah. I can't even say his name without geeky. <laughs> Which, by the way, he was accompanied by Rena Moreno. So, oh, really? Yeah. And one of your nice. favorites was also there, Duncan Sheik. I do like Duncan Sheik. Yeah. He's which, from New Jersey. Which I do believe this probably would have coincided with the release of Spring Awakening. Oh, that's right. Yeah. When he had his show and he won Tony for it. Yes, he did. Bernadette Peters was also there, of course. Because she actually, yeah. she actually, not even just Broadway. But she is a Sondheim favorite because there's literally nothing that she can't do because she is a goddess and I would melt if I ever met her. She performed a song that had been cut from one of these shows prior. And I'm wondering if it was like from Frogs or <laughs> funny thing happened on the way to the forum because apparently they cut that with brutality. So another one that I'm going to mention is on April 26th, there was a birthday celebration to benefit young playwrights. And of course, Joanna Gleason was there. I also wanted to bring up that B.D. Wong was there. And Gary no was kidding. there. Catherine Zeta-Jones, Ralph Sparza, Nathan Lane, the original cast of Into the Woods, Ben Wright, Angela Lansbury, and Jim Walton. And it was directed by John Doyle, and it was co-hosted by Mia Farrow. Wow, that's a lineup. Yes. And there were greetings from Milton Babbitt, which we've mentioned before, and Judy mm-hmm. Dench. Judy Dench. Yes. And then Catherine Zeta-Jones performed Sin in the Clouds, which you can actually find that on YouTube because she also did it for the Tonys. That's right. I remember that. Julie Andrews sang a part of Not a Day Goes By in a recorded greeting. Patty Lapone, Barbara Cook, Bernadette Peters, and Victor Garber were scheduled to perform, but for some reason, none of them appeared, which is weird. Hmm. There was another celebration of his life on July 31st, which was from the BBC at the Royal Albert Hall Theater, which I want to go ahead and spoil. I think we're trying to plan a trip to London, and if you do <laughs> not take me to this theater to see something, I don't care if it's a guy farting on phone book 45 minutes, our marriage might be over. <laughs> I mean, if they, they have tickets to that, we'll see. Lemon <laughs> Rel Miranda parts on a phone book for 45 minutes. The tickets are $4,800 each. Sold. Take my Whoa, credit cards. Oh, <laughs> goodness gracious. And that also included Judy Dench singing Send in the Clowns. Ah. And then on November 19th, the New York Pops performed at Carnegie Hall. <laughs> Because you need a whole ass year to celebrate this man. And you really do. Yes. But since that was November, then of course you have to celebrate Christmas. And so I don't think any benefit concerts were held at that point. So Sondheim collaborated with Wilton Marsalis on Bed and a Chair. But with Wilton Marsalis? Wilton Marsalis. Oh, wow. You know, you know, Wenton Marsalis? Of course. Yeah. Bradford Marsalis. Yeah. The Marsalis family, they're big in jazz. And oh. uh, was it? Branford was one of the band leaders for one of the late shows. I can't remember which one. 
Ooh, I did not know that. Yeah. That's yeah, a I mean, fun it fact. Up. It might be. We have to make sure it's accurate first, right. but I believe he was. Uh, yeah, he, he from 1992 to 95, he led the Tonight Show Band, Branford. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. but not Wilton. No, Winton. Winton. I Winton. Winton, I believe, is the son. Let me just confirm that. Yeah, they're big in the jazz, jazz community. That's really interesting that Winton did jazz. Yeah, if it's what I think it, it is. It makes sense. Because I do always feel like he's he's always had like a jazzy, bluesy feel to him. Oh, okay. Yeah, so yes, he is Branford's brother. There are about six Marcellus children, and I think half of them are in the music industry. That's awesome. Yeah. So he collaborated with Wynton Marsalis on mm-hmm. A Bed in a Chair, a New York love affair and encore, which was a concert that was held November 13th through the 17th, 2013 at New York City Center. It was directed by John Doyle, who had done a couple of those shows that I just spoke about. And there was actually a choreographer brought in, and it consisted of more than two dozen Sondheim compositions, each piece newly reimagined by Marsalis. The concert featured Bernadette Peters, one of my favorite people, Jeremy Jordan. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, we got to see on Broadway. Yes, we did. Four dancers and the jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra, which was conducted by the guy with the most perfect name. Like, you know that there's a running joke, I think it's on Jimmy Fallon's show or uh, Jimmy Kimmel's show. And it was mm-hmm. people born with the perfect name. Okay. And this guy is the conductor of the jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra. And his name is David Loud. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> In Playville, Stephen Seconds called the concert neither a musical, a revival, nor a standard songbook review. It is rather a staged and sung chamber jazz rendition of a string of songs. Half of the songs come from company and followers. And most of the other Sondheim musicals are represented, including the lesser-known Passions and Roadshow. I keep m- trying to make it more than one passion. It's just passion. It's passion, it's not, right? It's not no. passions. No S. It's passion. <laughs> I don't know why I keep trying to uh, <laughs> multiply my passion. Isolate those vocals. I need those for later. <laughs> <laughs> And then in 2014, they released a film adaptation of Into the Woods. <sighs> yeah, wow. they did that. Sondheim wrote the new song, She'll Be Back, which was supposed to be sung for the witch, which is cut from the film. Here's my problem with Into the Woods. And this is my same problem that I had for the film version of Les Miserables. Mm. They took all these really fun songs and just managed to make them real downers. Okay. Also, I hate you, James Corden. There's that too, yes. Stop being in musicals. You don't, <laughs> you, we don't need you in any more music. Again, I hope he hears this. I, <laughs> I, I, you know what? I'm going to say something very controversial. Mm. I might dislike James Corden more than I dislike Phil Collins. <gasps> Zach, copy this and play just over and over and over for the entire episode. <laughs> I might dislike James Corden more than I dislike Phil Collins. I might dislike James Corden more than I dislike Phil Collins. <laughs> Whatever the running time is, just duplicate that clip. He is mean. He is mean. He is mean. And I yeah, don't... No, no. Stop it, James Corden. And I'm not the only person who thinks this either, but... Yeah, apparently it's chronic, yeah. But people that I was really impressed with in the film was Chris Pine as mm. one of the princes, which he made agony 
really funny. He was he yeah. looked like he was one of the ones that was having fun with it. That was funny. Anna Kendrick, whose vocals I thought were really like matched Cinderella really, really well. I thought she was great. I really liked Emily Blunt. I was surprised at Meryl Streep, which I probably shouldn't have because I think I want to say Mamma Mia came out before Into the Woods and I was impressed with her with Mamma Mia. But again, it just, it suffers from, you need to have fun with this, even if it's dark material. Just remember, it's a musical. Like, you need to have fun. When a musical is done right, you walk out of the theater thinking you can fly or fight or dance, because God knows I can't dance. (laughs) And I just walked out kind of like, "Ah, okay. (laughs) But there is the original 1987 stage production, which was filmed, which I think you can also find on Netflix. Although we we are not sponsored by Netflix. So don't think that we're sponsored by Netflix because this is like the second time that I've been like, try this out. If not, it's probably on Amazon Prime. (laughs) Anybody want our password? It's fine. It doesn't work anymore. Can't do that. Oh, dang. Yes. They shut that down. In February of 2012, it was announced that Sondheim would collaborate on a new musical with David Ives, and he had about a 20 to 30 minutes of the musical completed. The show was tentatively called All Together Now and was assumed to follow the format of Merrily We Roll Along. Sondheim described the project as two people and what goes into their relationship. We'll write it for a couple months and we'll have a workshop, and it seemed experimental and fresh 20 years ago, I have a feeling that it might not be fresh and experimental anymore. And this is the David Ives who also wrote All in the Timing, correct? I believe so. Nice. On October 11th, 2014, it was confirmed that Sondheim's and Ives' musical would be based on the Louis Bruin film, The Exterminating Angel, and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, which, by the way, we bought that and we've never watched it. Apparently, it's absurdist and hilarious and we love it. There's a great channel it's, called Cinefix. Um, it's on the AFI list, I think, isn't it? It might be, but we we have it. We just haven't sat down and watched it. Which it's one when they're having dinner, right? And, it's, cra- and yeah. they can't eat. They can't eat, yep. Yes, and they can't eat. And it was it's supposed to be just a, a fantastic satire. And that would it would open in previews at the Public Theater in 2017. In August 2017, 16, a reading for the musical was held at the Public Theater, and it was reported that only the first act was finished, which cast doubts on the speculation of a 2017 preview. There was a workshop in November 2016 with the participation of somebody we know very well. Mm -hmm. Matthew Morrison. Hey, that guy. Yes, and Sierra Boggs, who is, by the way, like the best, I will say one of the best Christines, because the Christine that we saw in New York... She was amazing. She was phenomenal. But if you're talking Dreamcast, when they filmed it with, I'm going to get his name wrong, Ramin Karamu. Ramin Karamu. That that was kind of like the Dreamcast. Yeah. Matthew Morrison, for those who do not know, he was Mr. Shu on Glee. But of course, he's also the original Link in Hairspray. And he has originated several different projects on Broadway. He's got a phenomenal voice. A light in the piazza, right? Was yes. him oh, God. Neverland one. When I worked with, there's a, an incredible arranger, composer, musician. He's everything. His name is Brad Ellis. And he was the piano player on Glee. And somehow, some way, I came into his orbit and we became really good friends. So he actually asked me to help do all the paperwork for 
Matthew's show, he was doing a kind of a review and it was going to be in concert. And so I got to sit in and listen to Brad play these beautiful songs and listen to Matthew sing. And I was in pure heaven. It was phenomenal. And to hear him do Light in the Piazza was great. But also he did Neverland and it's beautiful. So to hear him sing that live was awesome. I've gone on a tangent about this man. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I just get so excited when I'm like, I know this people. <laughs> I know exactly how to say your name. So the working title was reported to be Brunel, but the New York Post and other outlets had reported that, but Sondheim later clarified that they didn't have a title for it. In June 2019, the Public Theater denied reports that it would be part of the 2019-2020 season as it was still in development, but it would be produced when it's ready. On April 27, 2001, it was reported that the musical was no longer in development. On The Late Show with Stephen Colbert on September 15th, Sunham announced that he was working on a new musical called Square One in collaboration with Ives. That same day, Nathan Lane revealed that he and Bernadette Peters had been involved in a reading of this in New York. In Sondheim's final interview before his death, it was confirmed that Square One was adapted from the Brunel films. Sondheim, the final thing that he appeared in, the final thing that you can actually see Stephen Sondheim in was a cameo appearance as himself in the 2022 Netflix film Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery, which... I didn't know he was in that. Huh? I do believe that was also Angela Lansbury's final appearance as well. Oh, wow. So to honor Sondheim's 90th birthday, because now we are just trekking every 10 years, the New York Times published a special nine-page theater supplement on March 15th, 2020, featuring comments by critics, performers, and fans on the Bard of Broadway. Due to theater closures during the COVID-19 pandemic, the Broadway revival of Company set to open up on March 22nd, 2020, which was Sondheim's actual 90th birthday. It was delayed. But the virtual concert, Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, was live-streamed on Broadway.com, which, by the way, I love. And they have a YouTube channel, and that's where it was shown on April 26th. Participants in that event included Lin-Manuel Miranda, Steven Spielberg, Meryl Streep, Nathan Lane, Mandy Patinkin, Victor Garver, Bernadette Peters, Patty Lapone, Neil Patrick Herrick, Jake Gyllenhaal, Christine Baranski, Sutton Foster, Josh Groban, Ben Platt, I'm tired, Brian <laughs> Stokes Mitchell, and Beanie Felstein, Audrey McDonald, and then Ralph Sparza. Okay, that was like a small list of the people that actually showed up. I cut that list down because I started <laughs> I started getting out of breath. But after New York theaters reopened in 2021, Sondheim attended revivals of two of his musicals, the opening night of Assassins at the <laughs> Classic Stage Company on November 14th and the first post-shutdown preview of Company at the Jacobs Theater on November 15th. So I want to reiterate, Sondheim was often described as introvert and solitary. In an interview with Frank Rich, he said, the outsider feeling, somebody who people want to both kiss and kill, occurred quite early in my life. Sondheim jokingly told the New York Times in 1966, I've never found anybody that I could work with as quickly as myself or with less argument. <laughs> that's, that's funny. Great. That is funny. Although he describes himself as naturally a collaborative animal. 
Sondheim opened up about being gay when he was about 40. He rarely discussed his personal life. And I think you can see that through these six episodes. It's just like, we know a lot about his work, but he wasn't very open about his private life. Though he said in a 2013 interview that he had not been in love before turning 60. When he entered into a roughly eight-year relationship with dramatist Peter Jones. That's the PJ that we had talked about earlier. He found love a second time with Jeff Romley, who was roughly 50 years his junior. Oh, oh boy. What do you call that? It's not, he can't be a cougar. No, there's got to be a, another term for it. I don't know. A manther? <laughs> I don't think I'm that clever. Yeah. Oh. Jeffrey Scott Romley tied the knot with Stephen Sondheim in 2017. They lived in Manhattan and Roxbury, Connecticut. Jeff is a Broadway actor and singer. Reportedly born in 1980. I don't know if that's like up for debate or not, but that's just what I found was reportedly born in 1980 in the United States and worked on Broadway and West End theaters. According to Broadway World, he had been associated with prominent shows like Hairspray, Sweetie Todd, The Producers, Porgy and Bess, and Company. He also worked as a theater talent representative at the William Morris Agency. The Broadway star garnered media attention after his relationship with Stephen came to light. The couple made news for their significant age difference, but continues to enjoy a private, happy life together. Here's the thing. Sarah Paulson is dating... Oh my gosh, what's her name? Well, uh, Sarah Paulson is dating... Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Um, was it the mother on Two and a Half Men? Oh my God. Holland Taylor. That, Holland Taylor, Holland yeah. Taylor. Mm-hmm. Holland Taylor. And they have a pretty significant age gap. But I feel like there's a certain age that you reach where age doesn't really matter that much. And I feel like... I think it matters less the older you get. Yeah. It doesn't seem that big of a chasm. I mean, 50 years is a big chasm, but like, is Stephen happy? Is Jeff happy? Then leave them alone. There you go, yeah. Look at Ian McKellen and his boyfriend. Exactly. Okay. So, off my soapbox. Leave them alone. Leave Mm -hmm. Stephen alone. Just uh, going back on some of his previous work, in 2010 and 2011, Sondheim published in two volumes his autobiography, Finish the Hat, which was collected lyrics with attended comments, principles, grudges, wines, and anecdotes. And (laughs) look, I made a hat, collected lyrics with attendant comments, amplification, dogmas, digressions, anecdotes, and miscellaneous the memoir included Sondheim's lyrics, lyrical declaration of principles, stating that the four principles underpinned everything I've ever written. And they were content dictates form, less is more, God is in the details, and all in the service of clarity. Hmm. In Six by Sondheim, James Lapine's 2013 documentary film about the creative process, Sondheim revealed that he likes to write music laying down and would occasionally have a cocktail to help him write, which we actually talked about mm. that before, was that like a lot of times when you're drinking, it stifles the creative process. But when Sondheim did it, like he actually felt like he was a little looser and could write a little bit better. So it doesn't really shock me. Yeah, and he's a writer. So I mean, there's a, a stereotype there. Completely accurate. Now, toward the end of his life, Sondheim became more comfortable about talking about himself and his status as an icon. He was willing to participate in the 2010 review, Sondheim on Sondheim, conducting tape segments of himself, talking about his life and his art. In one segment, discussing Sunday in the Park with George, he observed, 
Part of the subject matter that is wonderful thing happens to any artist when they're creating art, which is losing the world. You trance out and then you come back to the real world and it's both good and a bad feeling. Sondheim died of cardiovascular disease at his room in Roxbury on November 26, 2021 at the age of 91. Collaborator and friend Jim Sam said Sondheim died in the arms of his husband, Jeff. On December 8th, 2021, Broadway theaters dimmed their marquee lights for one minute as a tribute. Sondheim, the composer, lyricist, who's thematically complex, lyrically nimble, and musically challenging scores changed the face of musical theater during the latter half of the 20th century and continues to influence the genre and the artist today. The New York Times obituary said Stephen Sondheim, one of Broadway history's songwriting titans, whose music and lyrics raised and reset the artistic standard for the American stage musical, died early Friday at his home in Roxbury, Connecticut. He was 91. His lawyer and friend, F. Richard Pappas, announced the death. He said he did not know the cause, but added that Mr. Sondheim had not been known to be ill and that the death was sudden. The day before, Mr. Sondheim had celebrated Thanksgiving dinner with his friends in Roxbury. Mr. Pappas said, Mr. Pappas said, his death certificate obtained by the Times on December 2nd said that the cause was cardiovascular disease. An intellectually rigorous artist who perpetually sought new creative paths, Mr. Sondheim was theater's most revered and influential composer, lyricist of the last half of the 20th century, if not its most popular. Sondheim is considered to be one of the most influential names in musical theater. He is known for reinventing the American musical, composing lyrics with a high degree of complexity and sophistication. With his career spanning several decades, the 91-year-old earned nine Tony Awards, eight Grammy Awards, an Academy Award, a Pulitzer Prize, a Laurence Olivier Award, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2015. Tributes poured in after the announcement. Hugh Jackman wrote, ever so often, someone comes along that fundamentally shifts an entire art form. Stephen Sondheim was one of those. As millions mourn his passing, I want to express my gratitude for all that he has given me and so many more, sending my love to his nearest and dearest. Adina Menzel paid her respects by saying, Goodbye, dear sir. We will spend our lives trying to make you proud. Hometown hero from Chester, South Carolina, Debbie Allen wrote, Rest in peace, Stephen Sondheim. Prolific composer and lyricist left us a legacy to remember and sing forever. There's a place for us somewhere. Ariana DeBose wrote, I'm at a loss. Feels like an end of an era. He did indeed set the standard for the American musical. Rest well, sir. At the time of Sinhan's death, it's estimated that his estate, including the rights to his work, was valued at about $75 million, the Oof. entirety of which was placed in a trust. In his will, he named F. Richard Pappas, the second and then second unnamed individual, as the executioners. Beneficiaries included his husband, Jeff, his frequent collaborator, James Lapine, former lover, Peter Jones, former assistant, Stephen Clare, designer, Peter Worcester, his gardener, the Smithsonian Institute, the Library of Congress, New York Public Library for Performing Arts. In his time, Stephen, I want to say, gave us so, so much as an audience. He never talked down to us, but he never 
expected us to not understand it. He never thought his audience was dumb. Yeah. And I think that's a really big thing. His lyrics are unforgettable. His music is beautiful. And I miss him so, so much because in 1991, somebody gave me a tape of Into the Woods and it changed the direction of my life. And this was the, you can hear the writing, the end of this was really, really hard for me. But he left a legacy of people that he taught behind him because he was so willing to teach people. And I think that that was what made it so beautiful for me is that he was willing to teach. He wasn't stubborn or closed off with his time or his talent. It's it's like he wanted to teach the next generation. And because of him, look who we have. We have Bernadette Peters. We had Angela Lansbury. We've got Mandy Patinkin. We've got these incredible performers that have gone on before us and done that work. And it is some of the most beautiful work. Even when he failed, he succeeded. (laughs) And he did fail at times, yeah. Yeah. So that's the end of this episode. I'm... Do you have any uh, any parting thoughts on Stephen? I mean, we kind of caught it all. It's, it's. I think it's impossible to say you appreciate Broadway and not mention his name. It's you can't do it. And he was truly transcendent. And you mentioned the the next generation, you know, and all those people are thankfully still with us. There's a tree growing even beyond that when you have people like Jonathan Larson, Lin Manuel Miranda, you know, Pasek yep. and Paul. Like yeah. really the torches passed and he was one of those people that you know he did create something totally new um and i do love that that idea that because rod serling also said it very well he said never assume that your audience is less intelligent than you are yeah Um, and he never that that was the thing he never talked down to the audience through his music no he never i don't i don't believe anytime i've listened to it i've been like well he's way smarter than you know he he I've never listened to his music and felt dumb. Right. <laughs> and I think that 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 says a lot about his art because he he wasn't going to spoon feed us. Mm-hmm. He expects you to keep up. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, "Oh, you're you you if you're here, you're here. Pay attention." Mm. Yeah. It was just it's really hard to say goodbye to someone like that. Absolutely. So like I said, I will give our socials out and then I will finish up this episode. Our social stuff, if you think that we're doing really good and you would like to donate to the cause, you could do so at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can check out the Desert Wasteland. That is our Twitter, which is <laughs> rock and roll LT, our Instagram, rock and roll heaven LT, Facebook, rock and roll heaven pod. And guys, please, we do ask that you go over to our Facebook page, enjoy it. Our admin, Thea, is crushing it over there. And all three of us and Thea always post. So go have fun over there. Again, that is Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Still not saying our website. And our TikTok is Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. And you can email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And please make sure to check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. If I said anything too fast, all of this information will be in the show notes. And in two weeks time, actually... Next weekend when this episode comes out, from when this episode comes out, I should say, the weekend after this episode comes out, we will be at Rockin' Pod 
I still believe there are some tickets left over, but you can check out all the guests and all the cool spots in Nashville that are going to be popping up at Rock and Pod Expo. And you can check that out at NashvilleRockandPodExpo.com for all the information. Again, that website will be in our show notes and I'll also be sharing that on our social media. But if you follow us on TikTok, I, we will hopefully be going live on my personal TikTok, which is, I believe, Lindley is Mildly Funny or Lindley the Casting Lady. <laughs> That's my personal TikTok. And I have the ability to go live because I have enough followers on my personal one to go live. So I will be going live and uh, I will be posting that on social media as well. <sighs> I am like emotionally drained after this, but I'm not going to end this episode on a normal closing song that we, you know, like we usually do. What I'm actually going to do is I'm going to share with you a video with the giants of the musical theater as it stands today with names like Lin-Manuel Miranda, Sarah Bareilles, and so many more who set up in Times Square and celebrated the life of Stephen Sondheim by reading from his book, Finish the Hat. I do encourage you to stick around through the reading because there is a beautiful little song afterward. Other than that, I really hope that you guys have enjoyed our series on Stephen Sondheim. If not, you should come back in like a week or two and it'll be a completely different person. I don't know if we can get further from Stephen Sondheim with our next subject. Um, I do believe it's Waylon Jennings. Yes, it is. And I do believe my brother is currently working on that right now. And according to his text, it is a little batty. It's so going to be nuts, yeah. There's probably going to be some parental warnings posted throughout the entire series. So. The whole thing is a parental warning. <laughs> so, yeah, just maybe Google Waylon Jennings and see if it's appropriate for kids. Other than that, Will, do you have anything that you would like to say? Just thank you for joining us on this series. I know it's a sort of deviation from what we normally cover on Rock and Roll Heaven, and we've covered a great artist here. You know, it should show that our show is definitely getting versatile as we go into our fourth year. It'll be our fourth year. Can't oh believe my it. God. Yeah, yeah, hard to believe. We got some other great things coming up. I know this was maybe not what you expected, but I hope you enjoyed the ride nonetheless, because I certainly did. Learned a lot about Stephen Sondheim. Like he composed that song from Dick Tracy. I had no idea. So lots of great stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I hope that you guys enjoyed this little deviation. I know this is really close to my heart. Broadway community is very, very important to me. And, you know, it, getting a chance to be able to talk about someone like this is really cool. And like I said, I'm probably going to end up doing my own new podcast for Broadway. <laughs> Fingers crossed, you guess some of you guys will have a little bit of a crossover and enjoy what I'll be creating on that one. I don't know when that's going to be, but who knows? It, it might be sometime this year or it could be after I finish my 187-part series on Prince. That's all I'm going <laughs> I have like 30 books on Prince now. All right. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for sticking with me through this series for this labor of love. And I hope you guys will come back next time for Waylon Jennings. And we will see you guys very soon. Love you all. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Bye. Hello, hello. No speeches today. Just some words from Steve. Book two, page 32. On Sunday, 
This is the only lyric I've written that consists of one long incomplete sentence. I wanted it to be like the descriptive caption you might read in a museum next to the painting. I hope that the tone would echo the permanence of the painting, which is not only a miracle of composition and innovative technique, but also a satirical piece of reportage, something Lapine had pointed out to me. Surratt was as much a cartoonist as a painter. Once, during the writing of each show, I cry at a notion, a word, a chord, a melodic idea, an accompaniment figure. Only once in each case, curiously enough, since I'm an easy crier at works of art, particularly those made by others. For example, with Anyone Can Whistle, it was the phrase, hold me, at the end of With So Little To Be Sure Of, against the chord underneath. Follies, it was the word home, in The Right Girl. The Pacific Overture is the last line of Someone in a Tree. Only cups of tea and history and someone in a tree. And merrily ro we roll along the vamp to our time. In this show, it was the word forever in Sunday. I was suddenly moved by the contemplation of what these people would have thought if they'd known they were being immortalized. And in a major way, in a great painting, I still cry when I think about it, but then I cry at Animal Planet, <laughs> often. One more line from James Lapine and we'll sing. White, a blank page or canvas, his favorite, so many possibilities.
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.